This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November 27, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. This week, we're going to take a look at a couple of things that have happened. First, in this short week, we're going to talk about the IRS announcement that they've delayed certain parts of the expanded form 1099K filings that were added as the American Rescue Plan Act back in 2021, now pushing it forward to 2024 tax years. And we'll also talk about the uh, release that came out on Wednesday that FinCEN entered the ERC fraud enforcement game, publishing 10 red flags for financial institutions to use to identify suspicious transactions that may need to be reported to FinCEN. So an expansion of ERC fraud reporting. So let's start with the IRS notice 2023-74 and the released at the same time fact sheet 2023-27, both of which came out on November the 21st. And what this deals with is third-party settlement organizations, DPSOs as referred to in the IRS documents, were required by the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 to begin reporting on Form 1099-K for payments of total more than $600 for goods and services beginning in 2022. Early this year, in Notice 2023-10, the IRS pushed the start date back to 2023 activity. So in theory, we'd be getting them early next year. The IRS has now come back through and decided one more time, we're going to push it back. So essentially, we're going to go back now and push the filings back So it'll be the 2024 activity now that matters, not the 2023 activity. So it's going to become one of those little deals we're going to work with. Now, the IRS notes that this does not change the rule for payment card transactions, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, etc. Those rules for traditional credit cards, yeah, not going to be impacted here. Rather, the third-party settlement organizations, the Venmos, the Zells, Um, and various other structures, including some uh, things that are really part of the, uh, part of the basically dealing with these setups like Uber and um, Postmates and those sorts of things. These things, part of the gig economy payment schemes, those also will be kind of delayed one more year by this. You also have to file if you perform backup withholding, though, and you're one of those organizations for payments in excess of $600. If you made those backup withholding um, amounts, you took that out, you've got to file the report for the obvious reason that they need that to match up to the tax returns. In a separate fact sheet, the IRS also announced its intention for next year, the 2024 reporting, uh, to phase in reporting beginning next year. So next year, the trigger is going to be $5,000 from its current $20,000, but not yet down to $600. Now, it's interesting the IRS did it that way because they didn't go in and say, hey, you know, we put that in the notice. So on paper, you know, it seems like the IRS may very well be setting this up this way so that next year they could just decide to dump the whole thing, or they also could decide next year, you know, Congress might fix the whole thing and it might go away. But it was interesting that the notice itself did not have the provision committing to the $5,000 number, but rather it's only in the separate fact sheet. They also reference you in the fact sheet to the IRS page 
that tells you what to do if you get a 1099-K. As they note, this does not mean a company may not issue them. In fact, probably some of them that were set up to issue them are not going to take the time to go back now and try to reprogram their systems, use a $20,000 cutoff, or to figure out, well, who do we withhold taxes from and who didn't we? So you may still see a lot of those go out there. And there is still the concern that some of these networks uh, were going to do it improperly anyway, because again, only payments through those networks for goods and services were supposed to be the things that required these notices. If you just made, let's say, a transfer for a birthday gift to a friend and you sent it through one of those services, in theory, uh, those did not appear to be required to be reported. But in many cases, those organizations just weren't going to bother with figuring out what was what. They're simply going to publish this thing and pay it over. So, you know, keep your eye on that. Normally, as you might expect, being in tax work, if there's a 1099K issued, you will want to put it on the return and probably back it off the return. The IRS tells you how to do that with the various structures there. They also discuss that a 1099K could show up in many places on the return properly. Obviously, if it's a payment for uh, goods or services related to your business, it should go on your Schedule C. If it's a payment for goods and services that relate to, let's say, not really a trader business, but you sold some you know, old stuff from your house via eBay, and you just kind of got rid of it, got rid of an old computer, old television, whatever. You sold it just via eBay, not as part of a business, but just cleaning out. That's also a little different reporting. So they have that discussion on their 1099K page that you will find on the fact sheet. Next up, and this was something interesting that came out because I don't know that anybody really thought this was coming. But what we got was a notice from FinCEN. And as you know from last week, you know, we've been looking at FinCEN for beneficial ownership interest reporting information and other related stuff. So you might think, well, another FinCEN thing, did they do something more with the beneficial owner information? Nope, that's not this one. Rather, FinCEN, along with the IRS Criminal Investigation Division, uh, got together and have been working on COVID-19 fraud, specifically COVID-19 employee retention credit fraud, which is the basis of this notice. Now, this is FinCEN Advisory, or ALERT, FIN 2023, ALERT 007. It was issued on November the 22nd of 2023. This alert is telling financial institutions about potential issues related to the employee retention credit that they will have a responsibility to keep an eye out for because financial institutions under the various U.S. banking rules are required to keep an eye out for money laundering or other illegal activities that may be taking place through their banks. And so there's some issues here. Now, the types of frauds they discuss that conceivably could have a bank need to be making reports. There are a couple of them that are directly related to a fraudulent employer who knowingly is filing, or a non-employer, knowingly filing a fraudulent report. But they're also going to get to the ERC mills in this structure as well. So they do talk about the use of fabricated or dormant entities. Now, that's pretty much straight-up fraud time. You know, you create a brand-new LLC, um, or you claim to have one. don't need a real one, I guess, really. Um, you claim to have an LLC. 
that you supposedly was harmed horribly by COVID. Turns out no such thing existed, no employees existed, or you use an entity that you got rid of years ago. So it's been dormant, and you suddenly, you know, have filed claims for this entity that hasn't been doing anything for the past seven years and file an ERC claim. Yes, there are claims like that that were made, and yes, those cases, it's very tough to figure out how the owner, you know, the party, the employer who owned the employer in question, who's getting this money back, was not aware that this was fraudulent. So I think those are ones where you're probably going to see a lot more idea of CID actually coming after the uh, owner or the employer as a criminal case. We're also going to talk about, talk about secondly, and this was an interesting division. They talked about businesses that were ineligible, where the owner was very, very much aware the business did not qualify. Um, this would be a more interesting one to do because we're going to get into intent. I think that that's one of the problems you're going to have here in criminal prosecutions is you're going to have to show criminal intent. However, probably a good warning here that if you are a law firm or accounting firm, they will probably have an easier time showing intent on the theory that you knew or should have known that this was not, that this didn't work for your business. Assuming you're taking a position that, you know, the IRS decides or CID decides is just way outside the realm that there was no full or partial termination of your business or suspension, I say proper word, of the business. Uh, and you should have known that. Now, if you're a guy running, let's say a trucking company, or a landscaping firm, things like that, who may not have much tax background, that's going to be a tougher sell for them to show that you were, in fact, aware. Although this may be a case where some businesses could get in trouble. I don't think they're going to go this route, but they could. Because a jury could always say, well, how could we have told? But if you had enough bad facts where a business owner, you know, was told he didn't qualify by his longtime accountant, and the business owner was therefore then a mill approached, accountant says again, or attorney says again, nope, you don't qualify, sorry, you clearly don't. And then they went and like asked four or five other attorneys and accountants and got the same answer. And finally then found number six, who said, oh, sure, you qualify. You know, that in that case, then maybe they could build a case or likely in that case, the problem is going to come more on civil penalty. That is the fact that you ignored the advice of your longtime attorney and accountant and went with the ERC mill and later found that you didn't qualify. That's the sort of thing that, yes, I guarantee you, the tax court regularly and district courts regularly hand out penalties in fact patterns like that because opinion shopping is not considered to be a good faith effort to properly determine your tax liability. And by opinion shopping, I mean you keep looking until you find somebody that gives you the answer that you want. Or to be totally blunt, it always looks bad when your longtime accountant or attorney told you flat out that you couldn't qualify to do X, but then you went and found somebody else who said you could. Or it appears you never asked the longtime attorney or accountant about whether you qualified. Rather, you just had this group telling you that you got this big money, so you just went ahead and did it and yeah, kind of ignored that. We had a case last year that we discussed about an IRA, self-directed IRA with gold coins, where one of the reasons why the court threw the penalties at the taxpayer 
was because the taxpayer had never informed their longtime CPA about what they were doing. They just simply went with the word of the promoter. All the CPA knew was that there was an IRA rollover in theory, but was never aware of what the client was actually doing, which was holding gold coins in their safe mixed up with their own personal gold coins. And eventually that sort of fell apart badly. But again, for criminal prosecution, I think it's a much higher bar. But if somebody did enough opinion shopping, it really could be. If they got enough, no, 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 no. And then, you know, on the 12th try, got a yes. That's when it starts looking bad. There, then they talk about aggressive third-party promoters. And these are probably what we've been mainly concerned about. And in fact, they actually use the term ERC mills in this document discussing the frauds and the flags. So describing the basic types of frauds, and obviously a third-party promoter that aggressively markets, they discuss in, the, in this ruling, in this particular alert, the third-party promoter uses aggressive marketing techniques to pursue employers through various mechanisms. Now, what's a little amusing is some of the promoters were using financial institutions as their referral mechanism. So this could get very dicey for those financial institutions that you have FinCEN getting in the middle of this at this point, because that's a potentially scary position to be in if you are a credit union or a bank and you know you got involved in this referral saying, oh yes, yes, I know your accountant knows nothing about this, but we have made a deal with this various with this ERC mill and we'll refer to you. And it turns out that you bank were getting a nice payback. You better hope that mill you referred to knew what they were doing. Unfortunately, in some cases I've seen, I don't believe the parties getting referral fees did much, if any, due diligence whatsoever. And that could look very, very bad. So, as I say, that's one they were looking at. That's an area. Now, they do get very concerned. And this is something I've talked to. I remember having a at a conference earlier this year, actually, the American, the Arizona Forum for Improvement of Taxation Summer Conference. I remember talking with somebody who runs a, who basically is a person, I believe, directing the CID offices here in, or office here in the Phoenix area. And she made a point, we talked about who's likely to get prosecuted, that what they like are things they can explain to a jury. And one thing that looks really, really bad is when you receive these funds under fraud and then you spend them on things that are clearly not business related, like, you know, the Lamborghini, you know, Lamborghinis and other, you know, expensive clothing, uh, other things that clearly aren't buying a new residence. You know, things that weren't related to the business and it just doesn't look like the business needed the funds. Uh, so I will warn you ahead of time that if you have a case like that where the funds are spent that way, it doesn't mean that you're going to be prosecuted. But I think clearly prosecutors believe that those are way easier to get convictions on because a jury will naturally react against that, that these people just got money. They took it from my pocket. Right. And they, they spent it on this. They wasted this money. And you know, that's considered a bad thing. So they do talk about that issues. Now, they also discuss, and this is for the banks. As I said, banks have to file suspicious activity reports if they become aware of transactions that might very well be indicative of fraud, of some sort of fraud, money laundering, etc. So 
they gave them a list of red flags. They are to assist the institutions in identifying suspicious transactions. And these are for suspicious transaction reporting purposes, right? Now, they do note, it's not as if any one of these by themselves automatically means that the that financial institution must file a report. But they say you must consider the totality of the circumstances. This says that, look, financial institution, you should be aware that this is the sort of thing that would turn up in a fraudulent transaction. So now consider other information you see in this customer, you see in this account. And, you know, does it appear, given the totality of information, that there is a mitigating explanation for why this happened this way? Or does it appear that maybe they're doing bad things? And that's the whole deal about, you know, fraudulent receipt and the funds appear to go out to a personal account and be they go on a spending spree. That would always be a bad additional fact. Not necessarily fatal, but a bad additional fact that would get the bank going. And let's not forget that when the banks are worried about this sort of uh, oversight by the feds, they may very well be more apt to file the notification of suspicious activity, since especially as long as they act in good faith, they don't have liability from filing that thing, then simply decide to keep it quiet. And as we learned a couple of years ago, in a case that involved uh, failing to file the reports for cash transactions and essentially hiding a lot of income from the IRS, the car dealership case from a couple of years ago, um, you may remember. Uh, yeah, that's they, they aren't going to tell the customer necessarily they've done it, right? They're going to file it. That particular case just was a terribly dumb customer. Not a good idea to go on the bank and ask them how to avoid making a deposit that they would have to report. Uh, you know, they may tell you about the technical requirements, but the mere fact you asked that question led to a suspicious activity filing in that case that led the IRS to this guy who was hiding all this money. So, yeah idiotic move turned into guy spending time in jail. So yes, not, not exactly a smart idea. But it also discusses the required reporting and that, that's the catch. If they, are, if, they reason, if they have reason to believe there was a potential fraud, they have a required report. And that's, I think, what the banks are more likely to focus on in this notice. So the key issue becomes, what exactly are these 10 red flags? And there are 10 of them. The first one they look at is a business account receives more than one ERC check deposit over multiple days. Um, now, again, there's lots of reasons that might happen. The IRS is doing multiple quarters, etc. But there is a concern that if an account is being used to accumulate a lot of ERC check deposits, and they do tell the bank how to identify a federal payroll tax refund check, right? So they basically have told them what to look for, you know, the coding on the check. So if they see a bunch of these going in over multiple days, and, you know, rather than one set or things happening, but there's just fear be a bunch, I'm sure the concern here is that you have people filing fraudulent claims uh, in various ways and claiming under various related but not really carefully tied, uh, you know, employer names, et cetera, that that could be a fraudulent scheme to accumulate lots of bucks. Next, they say you got a small business account that receives an ERC tax check deposit that's not commensurate with the size of business, number of employees, or volume of transactions. 
to have this little tiny, you know, LLC that has one rental property. And somehow, though, this one person LLC rental uh, is depositing $26,000 times 30 employees into the accounts as ERC refund checks. That would be considered automatically suspicious because the business is not big enough to have generated that kind of number, right? And it's one of those things where, yeah, I don't see payroll checks going through here. I don't see many payroll deposits, but I see these huge refunds. And I, you know, and we, and usually let's say this little rental, you know, I mean, every month, the only checks that went out were monthly checks to pay the, uh, pay, pay the mortgage. And then a couple of checks per year per year for you know payments for repairs and maybe the property taxes twice a year and insurance every so often. And suddenly we see all this money flowing in, supposedly for all these employees. That would be suspicious activities that should be reported. They also suggest a large ERC is deposited in a business account and is subsequently transferred using peer-to-peer services or to an online banking institution right? Or withdrawn as cash at an ATM. These funds may be subsequently transferred from the account into separate accounts or payments may be made to new businesses that a customer has not had transactions with prior to receiving an ERC check deposit. We're looking for somebody who believes they hit the jackpot. You know, somebody like that who is spending this money, not using it for business and treating it as non-business and moving it intentionally and maybe to a certain extent trying to hide where it's going to uh, that's considered suspicious activity and activity that somebody who was in this thing fraudulently be more apt to engage in than somebody who really was, you know, had a business that was negatively impacted and is looking to recover that business. It's not the type of activity we would expect from somebody who, you know, was really trying to recover the business. Again, not necessarily fatal, but it's a look bad transaction. And again, and as I've noted, this sort of look bad transaction is something that prosecutors salivate over because it will immediately bias the jury against the person that got the money. Look, this person got all this money. He or she clearly didn't need it. And while needing it is not a requirement for ERC, um, you you now got a jury predisposed to see if there's some way they can throw the book at this guy. And that is a problem. So that's one thing they look at, right? The account receiving the check has no deposits other than treasury issued checks, or the account has no regular business transactions. Again, this looks like a fraudulent ERC. And the theory being one that even if a mill filed it for this guy, you know, they should have known. There, there's no way they didn't have employees. They they should have known that that this made no sense. So again, that looks to be a potential fraudulent account. Uh, attempting to deposit altered check or financial institutions are unable to verify validity of the checks. Customers attempt to deposit. This could be the sort of fraud most likely they're looking at here, where somebody starts filing ERC claims on behalf of other businesses and then is attempting to deposit them into an account they control. And yes, there has been identity theft fraud, fraud business levels uh, that have been used to file false claims or file fraudulent claims without the knowledge of the business. That is something specifically discussed in this alert as a sort of thing that's happened. The ERC is deposited into a new business account that did not exist in 2020 or 2021. Again, 
the theory being this looks bad. They didn't put it into a business account. They didn't put it in the account they were operating under in 2020 and 2021. Again, this looks like the sort of thing done by somebody who, again, means that in prosecution language, they didn't need the check. Needing the check is not a mandatory purpose here, but again, but combined with any other bad facts, it'll get the jury going against them. So this is one of those things that you'd be concerned about if a referral popped up, that they might be concerned, are there other bad facts that make this look criminal? That's probably one of the key issues. And by the way, if you are not an attorney and you begin to worry that this might look criminal, probably it's best to have the client talk with legal counsel and don't talk with you because if you're a CPA or EA and you talk and you're not an attorney, um, you could end up being the prosecution star witness, especially when they start asking detailed questions about what you were and weren't told, were you consulted, and expect that's the sort of thing you'd be asked about anyway. You know, did they consult you, etc.? Why didn't they consult you? And this is the sort of thing a client's likely to tell you, and you don't want them telling you this, right? If you're going to be up there, you just say, they didn't consult me, they don't have to, I didn't consult with them. Um, you know, but it, it just sounds bad to say, didn't consult with me because th this guy that approached him via email said, oh, your account would know nothing about this, so don't bother with the accountant or the attorney. It's kind of a bad sign thing that comes up when you have it. A new business account is, is created for an established business, but no other activity occurs in the account except for the positive ERC. This can be indicative, and this one they make explicit of identity theft where the established business was used as a fraudulent front to file for the ERC. So let's say somebody knows or figures that, for instance, my accounting firm probably is not filing for this credit because, you know, we were able to continue operating. We were never shut down. You know, so they're going to figure, yeah, they probably aren't filing for this. And, you know, we, we, we figure that, hey, you know, the, these guys supposedly know what they're doing. Knowing what they're doing, they know they don't qualify that they had no restriction of any sort that could potentially qualify them for the ERC. So because of that, we'll just go ahead and create a fake account in the name of the accounting firm. We will get their you know, EIN, however way we can get a hold of that, which probably wouldn't be that hard, and then set up a fake account at the bank claiming that we are the accounting firm, file for the claims, deposit the check. The, uh, you know, they're, they're supposed to say that looks like a suspicious activity, even though it's an established business, let's say they do actually get it set up at our bank. And so they, they use our bank, even our bank sees that somehow doesn't ask a question. And again, it's a large national bank. There is a decent chance they could set one up where somebody at the big bank just noticed, oh, well, that, that's a that's an existing customer and doesn't consider it that big a deal. They're telling them, well, it should be a big deal if the money goes into this account. And nothing else ever goes through it. The business set up this account for this purpose only. That's suspicious in that front. They might not have been the one that set it up. A dormant account suddenly receives an ERC check deposit. So this is one where there's been no activity or minimal activity for a long time. Uh, and they haven't closed it, but it's just sitting there. And then suddenly out of the blue, here comes this $2 million deposit for ERC. That's considered to be a potentially problematical transaction. They also suggest, you know, pay attention. If there's been no payroll history, and the way the bank would notice this, if there's a deposit into a business account with no payroll history, you know, they, they might notice, let's say it was a sole proprietor, 
uh, consultant, didn't have any employees on, you know, on the payroll, right? Just a one-person operation. Uh, that one-person operation, you know, so it's never had any payroll. And we know that because we have never seen payroll tax deposits come out of this account. We've never seen anything, you know, and those should these days be mainly electronically withdrawn. It should be obvious. And if they're getting a $2 million amount, they definitely should have been using the electronic transfer systems to, tra to make those payments. And they never showed up in here. That's suddenly a kind of interesting issue that out of the blue, an account that has no obvious payroll never wrote, if I'm sitting here in Arizona, never wrote any, made any transfers, payments to the Arizona Department of Revenue or the Arizona Department of Economic Security for unemployment taxes, but suddenly we have a $2 million deposit going into the account. That would be considered to be suspicious, shall we say. And finally, a customer reports provides documents indicating their ERC was obtained by a third-party firm whose credentials cannot be verified or is the subject of adverse media. That last one's interesting. So what they're saying is a bank should consider if the customer used an ERC mill, especially one that there has been adverse media about or for which they cannot find any backup credentials, which suggests they should be looking for the credentials. So that's also an interesting issue. Now, how the bank becomes aware of that, um, you know, the customer says they did it, or they provide documents. And I suppose part of those documents could even be the payments made. You know, if they make the, if, if they pay the contingent fee out of the account to, let, let's say we rip off the government, you know, ERC mill Inc. Um, yeah, that, that, that might be enough to get them looked at. And like I said, this is more interesting in the expansion, how CID and FinCEN are working on this. And it does suggest that things could get a little more interesting. Now, again, FinCEN and CID are primarily interested in criminal fraud. That, that's really their area of expertise, where they're going. So these are more serious cases. Uh, I would be concerned if you get, obviously, your client gets a contact from CID. That is not the time, if you're not, if you're not an attorney, to be stepping up and handling things for them. Uh, that, that's the time to say, go talk to the attorney. Because you need to be able to get your whole story to somebody who can't be forced to regurgitate that whole story back to the government. You know, basically, let, let's go ahead and try to do this right. So get it together. So as I said, interesting that we're seeing it this way. Interesting we've seen this. There, I also reported last week, I saw one report on X uh, from Dan Choden. That, and it was only one case he was aware of that he heard it, but where the IRS was reaching out to state taxing agencies and it would appear kind of, you know, basically contracting out ERC payroll work uh, to, you know, let's say, state and local tax agencies that might have some excess capacity and they could be paid to do this work. So the IRS may be reaching out to involve more people, more agencies in this mess. So the ERC bit could get more interesting. Well, it was a short week. So as I said, not exactly a lot happened. Uh, I will check in next week and we'll try to get everything up and running. We'll have a full week coming on. Uh, you know, following that week, it gets more interesting because I do have some sessions I'll be doing in Tucson, which kind of gets in the way of, of things for the week. But hopefully I'll be able to write up things and uh, give you some updates then. But otherwise, take care. Enjoy. Hopefully you had a good uh, Thanksgiving weekend.
and you're back ready to go through that end of year tax planning fund uh, until we get to the very end of the year when all the clients disappear on vacation. And then we just kind of sit tight and uh, wait, wait for the year to start and then wait for the brand new tax season to get underway. I know it seems like the old one just went away not long ago, which it did. But remember, we got the new one coming up as well. Otherwise, remember, you can ask questions at Zollers or CurrentFortaxDevelopments.com. Uh, you also can and should be able to find me online online if you are a member of the Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, or Washington societies. I'm on the Connect site. And I also take a look at what the Idaho Society's uh, discussion boards, if things go up there, I try to take a look in there and, and keep things up to date there. Otherwise, take care. We'll see you back here next week with more current federal tax development.